Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. So imagine, just imagine if when you came to worship this morning, all we had up here were just a bunch of signs. There were signs everywhere of all kinds of shapes and colors and, and figures on them, but you had no idea what they meant. And we were just like all, just all of us up here, just like, you know, getting all this excitement about these signs, and, and we were clapping, and we were just like, and you guys were like, okay, somebody going to tell us what these signs mean? Or what if there were just a, a ton of people all over the auditorium and up here singing solos, but everybody was doing it all at once. And then those of us who were teachers in the church, there were maybe 10 or 20 of us, we were all teaching our own special subject all in the sanctuary all at the same time. And all this is happening simultaneously. All these signs, you don't know what they are, people singing, people teaching, and then at the end of all that, I just kind of come up here and I said, hey man, great time in the Lord. Amen. See you next Sunday. You guys would think that I had lost my mind. You guys really would say, hey, Steve, when was the last time you went to California or Colorado and ate some of those special brownies? That's what you'd be saying. I'll tell you one thing, you wouldn't be edified. I can tell you something else, you wouldn't worship and if you are a guest here, and if you really don't know the Lord, I'm glad that you're here, but you would probably say, these people are nuts. Well, welcome to the average service in Corinth. That was what was happening, except not only were there a bunch of signs and nobody knew what they were and a bunch of people just singing and nobody would, would wait for anybody else and everybody was teaching all the sound. There were people making these gibberish sounds over and over and over again and just getting so excited with that and nobody knew a thing they were saying. So they called it a worship service, but I don't know if it was that. If you've been following with us, you know that last time we were here, Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians what we're really to be doing and seeking when we come to worship. We looked at last week, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 19, and we covered, Paul says, when we gather, we are to seek comprehensive edification. In other words, it can't be just about a few people. Everybody has to be edified. There has to be clear meaning and what we're saying, there can't be just stuff that people are saying and nobody knows what they're really saying. And then we talked about that has to be common understanding. Not only do we have to know what it means, we have to understand how to apply it to our lives. We talked about in 1 Corinthians 14 how Paul uses tongues as an illustration to show what we're really to seek in worship. We saw that really tongues is kind of this thing that's kind of put down here, whereas prophecy the proclamation of the Word of God is kind of elevated, and why would it be that way? Because tongues edifies no one, but prophecy edifies everyone. In our text this morning in 1 Corinthians, we're going to be reading verses 20 through 28, so if you want to turn there, 
your copy of God's Word, or maybe there's one of the seat pockets under the chairs around you, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 14. We'll be looking at verses 20 through 28. But here's where we're headed this morning. Paul, again, is going to stay on this idea of tongues. And he's going to talk about their purpose and the procedure for tongues. But in that, he's also going to teach us, again, what we're to do when we assemble together. Last week, it's kind of like, what are we supposed to be seeking? This week, when we're assembled, what really should we be after? What, what should be the thing that we're, we're doing? So Paul gives us two truths. We'll only cover one this morning, and we'll look at the, the second one next week. But this morning, he gives us these two truths about what we should be doing. What, what happens when we're assembled? Like this, when we are assembled as a church. So I know that you've been standing for a hot minute, but I want you to stand again as we read God's holy word, because I want you to know there's something different when God's speaking than when I'm speaking. This is God's word, amen? So let's honor the word of God and when God speaks. The Bible says in verse 20, brethren, that's precious, thanks Paul. He's going to remind them of how loved they are before he gives them a spanking is what's going to happen. That's, that's what he's doing. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet be evil, and evil be infants, but in your thinking be what? Now pay attention here, because this right here is so critically important to where we're headed today. In the law, it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Please pay attention to these next words. So, then tongues are for a sign, watch this, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore, Paul? Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three at most, and each in turn, and one, only one, must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. You may be seated and may God bless the reading of his word. Lord Jesus, please help me right now in these moments through the power of your spirit to teach our church what these difficult words really do mean. Paul says this, he says really what I would say to you is, is that when we're gathered, when we're assembled, when we're gathered, We should seek scriptural substance, not spiritual signs. The purpose of the gift of tongues is a sign. 
So this is important because once we know the purpose of something, we can evaluate what really is happening with it. If it either fits its biblical purpose or it doesn't, if it's legitimate or it's not. So verse 20, Paul says, brethren, don't be children or literally stop. The word really says, stop being children. Stop being children in your thinking, yet in evil, that's the word for actual evil, in evil be infants. What's a younger word than the first word, right? Children. The the first word for child would be a five to ten-year-old child. The second one would be like a one-year-old or maybe less. And the verb be infants really means to be innocent in the sense of not having known evil. Then he says, in your thinking, be mature, be one who fully understands. The word has to do with cognition, the ability to think and understand and even ponder. So putting it all together, we could say, Paul was saying, hey, hey, brothers, listen, stop being children in your thinking. However, concerning evil, be infants, but in your understanding, be mature men and women, because children might be quite content to just make noise for no particular use. But mature people desire sounds that communicate things and edify. So notice again that he starts out by calling them brethren, and he wants them to know that even though they're acting evil, they're still brethren, they they still belong to the body of Christ, they still belong to the beloved family of believers, but because of that, now he can give them some really hard truth. And this morning, I will tell you, This may be shocking to some of you where we go. The admonition here suggests that because of their misuse of tongues, they were acting evil. They were children in their thinking. In other words, they hadn't really grown up in solid doctrine. They were like Ephesians 14 says, they were tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine. They didn't use their minds. Their minds were unfruitful. As you remember last week in verse 14, that they weren't being fruitful with their minds. And so they weren't thinking through the right things, the biblical things, the the things out of the revelation of God that they had received. And so in their understanding and thinking, they were children rather than grown adult men and women. They should have been mature in their minds and grasped truth, but instead they were mature and actually evil. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, an infant has no evil thoughts toward anybody. My little granddaughter, Sophia, down here, just a couple of days old, she has no malice. An infant just is all love and tenderness and care and sensitivity. And so you see what he's saying is this, why don't you treat each other like that when you're gathered together? Well, why don't you like little infants when it comes to the way you treat one another, just kind and tender and sweet? But then also, why don't you be mature in your thinking instead of being infants in your thinking? But you guys are just mature and evil, and what he's talking about is the practice of tongues. You see, what he means is that by virtue of their selfish exercise of the gift of tongues for the purpose of edifying themselves and their selfish ego trips, they were ignoring the rest of the family of God. They were ignoring the rest of the congregation. And therefore, there was total confusion. There was no room for the real teaching of the word of God. The people who visited their congregation thought they were mad. 
they weren't getting anything out of it. It was just total chaos, and everybody was doing their own thing. What it really boiled down to is what it really boils down today in a lot of our churches. There was an anti-intellectualism that people just can't handle solid biblical teaching they want an experience. Now, having said that and called them to attention, he tells them the purpose of tongues. Now watch, because if we can decide what this is, it would solve many problems in the kingdom of God. Verse 21, look there in your Bibles. It is written, he says, in the law, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, even so they won't listen to me, says the Lord. Verse 22, so then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So let's focus here just for a minute. A couple of things I need to point out to you. First of all, if you don't know anything else about tongues, you can know something for certain today when you leave here. First, that tongues are a known, intelligible, existing language. Tongues are not ecstatic utterances or gibberish or being slain in the spirit and just saying something spiritual. That is not what he says here. Second, pay attention, tongues are for a sign, not to them who what? Who don't believe. That's what the sign is for. It's for unbelievers. That statement is so, in its, in its essence, it's so important because that statement in itself should put to death any and all current tongue speaking in every church. Because it is really a sign to them who don't believe. Let me show you what that means. Tongues are a sign in three ways. First, tongues are a sign of cursing. Let's dive a little deeper. Let's look in verse 21. He says, in the law. The law does not always refer to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It frequently refers to the entire Old Testament, as it does in Psalm 119 and other places like Romans. So he's saying, in the Old Testament, it is written. And then he quotes Isaiah 28, 11 and 12. And he says, with the men of other tongues and lips, I will speak to this people. And this people refers to Israel in the text. And yet they won't hear me, says the Lord. And having then given them the Old Testament statement of Isaiah to Israel, he then applies it. And he says, therefore, if it was true then in the use of the days of Isaiah, tongues are not were, but are, are still a sign to unbelievers. So he draws a conclusion from the Old Testament text, and the conclusion that we have to come to, because Paul is leading us here, is that tongues are not for believing people. Tongues are for unbelieving people. Now, I want you to pay attention to something else, because in verse 22, it says, tongues are for a sign. Those three little words in the Greek, for a sign, it's, it's ice. The word is I-E-I-S, and it indicates purpose unto something. So the word here is saying it isn't incidentally that this is a sign. It's in this is the sign. It's not by happenstance or certainly. This really is the sign of tongues. So the purpose of tongues is for a sign to unbelievers. What unbelievers? Well, he says this people in verse 21. This people has only one reference in mind. It's Israel. So it is a sign to unbelieving Israel. 
then that's carried right into the Corinthian situation. So let me give you a little background on why Paul would use Isaiah 28 to, to be a quote here. In Isaiah 28, we find ourselves in the southern kingdom of Judah in the reign of King Hezekiah. The year is approximately 705 B.C. But yet in 722 B.C., some 15 years earlier, the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken away and destroyed by the Assyrians. The reason that happened was because of their unbelief and their apostasy. And God had come in terrible judgment against the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., Now it's 705 BC, and the southern kingdom now is totally overcome with unbelief, which led to disobedience. So God speaks to them through the prophet Isaiah to warn them that the same thing that happened to the northern kingdom is going to happen to the southern kingdom because of their unbelief. And that is the message of the first 15 verses of Isaiah 28. It's a warning from the prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom, that they're going to receive the same kind of judgment that the ones in the north received. And in fact, it will be the Assyrians or the babbling Babylonians that are going to come against them in judgment. Now, let's see how Isaiah approaches the problem. He finds the leaders of Israel, the prophets and the priests and the leaders. He finds them in a drunken stupor. Verse 7, Isaiah 28, 7 says this. And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. They had failed to fulfill their function as leaders because they're drunk. Verse 7 and 8. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel from having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. He finds them in a little drunken stupor having even vomited. They're at some party and he unloads this message on them of terrible rebuke and the coming judgment. And do you know what their reaction is? They mock him. They scorn him. They chide the prophet. Isaiah 28, 9, look at what they say in verse 9. To whom would he teach knowledge and to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? Those, what do you think we are, a bunch of babies? Verse 10, for he says, order on order, Order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here and a little there. They're thinking, he thinks we're babies. He just keeps repeating the same stuff over and over. So they mock him. They don't appreciate him. They begin to sneer at the prophet. They call his teaching just simple childish teaching. Does he think we're babies? He's got to just keep repeating line after line over and over and over again. They didn't even hear it. They didn't even listen. So in verse 11, indeed, He will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose. But they would not listen. God says, you wouldn't hear the simple, repeated, childlike message of Isaiah. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to speak to you in a language you don't even understand. And what he meant was the babbling Babylonians who would come and encompass their city, would take them to their land, destroy them, slaughter them, and even burn them. And... Here's his point. When you begin to hear the unintelligible language of Babylonians, it should be clear that you should understand that the judgment of God is falling on you. And it happened in 588 BC. And because of their unbelief and their apostasy, God brought a terrible judgment. That wasn't the only time God had warned them about this thing. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 49, back in the 15th century before Christ, listen to me. Deuteronomy 28, 49 says this. 
The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar and from the end of the earth as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand. And I believe that is reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So in the 15th century, God warned them that they would hear a strange language and it would be judgment. In the 8th century, Isaiah, God warned them that when they heard a strange language, it would be judgment. So Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 5, he says this, 5.15, he says, Behold, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel. Declares the Lord, it is an enduring nation. It's a nation, nation. Watch. A nation whose language you do not know, nor you understand what they say. And God clearly pointed out in their minds what they were going to be, they were going to be judged. This is going to be a sign. And the sign would be when you hear that language that you don't understand, know that judgment is falling. Now, Paul quotes that. He quotes all that history when he uses Isaiah. And in 1 Corinthians 14, it's like this. He's saying there in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 21, here's what he's saying. Just as Isaiah said it, just as Moses says it, just as Jeremiah says it, those languages are a sign to the unbeliever that God is acting in judgment. So you say, what did it mean then to the generation in which Paul lived? When they began to speak those languages on the day of Pentecost, every Jew should have known that the judgment of God was falling on them. You see, just about 30 years after that, the Roman emperor came in and wiped out Jerusalem, and with it, he wiped out Judaism as we know it. The sacrificial system ended, and it's never been restored. They should have known the judgment of God was coming. And listen, if the judgment of God fell on the unbelief of the northern kingdom in 722, and the judgment of God fell on the unbelief of the people down in the southern kingdom in 586, then God is saying the judgment of God is going to fall on the Jews who don't believe in this time, and they surely did, because in AD 70, that's exactly what happened. The temple was destroyed. So that's what the text is. Here's the point. Tongues were never intended to be something for a Christian. It was always for the one who didn't believe that judgment was coming. Which one? This is why I'm telling you it solves the problem in our churches. It was specifically for unbelieving Jews. This purpose can be traced and seen to be true in the book of Acts. In chapter 2 of Acts, many unbelieving Jewish people were the ones that were gathered. They were all unbelievers. And when you have other incidents of speaking in tongues on another occasion, like Acts chapter 8, chapter 10, or even 19, sure, some people become believers, yet the occurrence of this same phenomenon becomes a reinforcement to the reality of the Jews that saw, and they would tell their countrymen what happened, because in Acts, we see wherever tongues occurred, there's always a believing Jews present who would come back and tell everybody, you should know the judgment of God is going to fall on you. Therefore, repent, and every one of you turn to God and receive life is what Peter says to them. So first of all, tongues are really a sign of cursing. But I want to add to that, it's also a sign of change. That's what I call the extra benefit of number one. 
First, the first thing is it's a sign of cursing. So tongues at Pentecost were also saying this, look, God's not going to work any longer through one nation. It's a part of their judgment. God's not just going to speak just one language. God's not going to favor just one people. God's going to take this thing to the world, and through the world, he's going to build his church and see the kingdom is built for all nations. And as you know, the very fact that they spoke in all those languages was God's way of saying, it's all over for the uniqueness of Israel. I'm going to speak in the world's languages, and I'm going to build a church that's hidden even in the Old Testament. So tongues speak primarily as a sign of curse on Israel, but, but no longer than I've said that, I have to say that, that the, the language of change is, is there in it as well. It becomes a sign of change. Like It's like Romans 11 when Paul says, the fall of them, meaning the Jews, has become the riches of the world. Jerusalem is destroyed and Israel is temporarily set aside, and in their setting aside, you and I become the beneficiaries of that. Because God now reaches out to us, the Gentiles. So God's New Testament apostles and God's New Testament prophets suddenly burst out spontaneously declaring the wonderful works of God in every language. In Acts 2, an unmistakable sign is that the transition had come, a curse on one hand and a change on the other hand. So in a sense, while being a judicial sign of a curse, it was also a great sign of change. Then thirdly, it's a sign of confirmation. Who were the great messengers who preached this transition and change? Who were the men of God who spoke the curse of judgment? Who were the men of God who spoke the blessing of change to come to all nations? They were none other than the apostles and the prophets. And it was to them that God gave the ability to speak these languages, an authenticating, confirming sign that what they were saying indeed was true, that God was going to judge the people. So Paul says in 14, 18, he says, I speak in languages more than all of you. Because in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, he says, I had all the signs of the apostle, the signs of wonders and mighty deeds. So this was a sign of authority and confirmation of the message that he was preaching. Notice, in 1 Corinthians 14, you find no mention of speaking in tongues being a private prayer language. You don't see the speaking of tongues of a bunch of people saying a bunch of things that make no sense. You don't see ever Paul using it as a proof of our salvation a sign of a second blessing or anything. What you see is the purpose of sign is this. It was a sign that was pointing namely to the destruction of Jerusalem. And once that event came and the transition made to the church, the sign was no longer necessary. So like, you know, I'm driving up on 71 and I'm headed to Smithville. I'm a simple person. I'm going to Smithville, man. I see a sign that says, hey, Smithville, like 15 miles. Well, hey, I know that Smithville is coming, right? So as I keep driving and I keep driving, I end up in Smithville. Do I need the sign anymore? Well, no, because I'm already there. Why do I need the sign for? That's exactly what Paul is saying. Tongues are a sign. It is a thing in itself. It's the sign. And the sign is to point to something. And it pointed to a curse that came on a people. And once it came, once they experienced that, there's no longer the sign is no longer necessary. So in verse 22, he says, but prophecy is for a sign, not to those who believe, but to those who don't, who don't believe, but to those who believe. Prophecy, proclamation of the word of God, isn't for the unbelieving nation. This is for the believing people through the years of church. But I want you to see something here incredibly important because in verse 22, I need to show you something. He says there, but prophecy is for a sign. In your Bible, that should be in italics or that should be in something different to show you 
that that isn't in the original text. That is supplied for your understanding. And what I need you to know is, is they, they, they didn't do it justice there. Because prophecy is not a sign. Prophecy is the substance. Prophecy isn't pointing to anything. <laughs> prophecy is something in itself. Prophecy is the thing that edifies. Go back to verse 3. 1 Corinthians 14.3. He that prophesies speaks to men edification, exhortation, and consolation. In verse 4, he says, prophesy edifies the church. In verse 1, seek that you should prophesy. What does it mean? Prophecy means simply to proclaim the word of God. So if you came to the Corinthian church, you would have heard all this massive, hysterical, self-centered, ego-building confusion. And Paul's saying, cut that stuff out. That had a specific purpose for a specific time to accomplish a specific thing. But when we meet together, seek to prophesy. In other words, proclaim the truth. It's far more important that we seek scriptural substance than those spiritual signs. Do you want to know something interesting? Say yes. Do you know that we have absolutely no record in the entire Bible of anything that was said in tongues? You know why? Because it was meant to pass. But do you know what we do have? We have every single prophecy that was ever given. Because this is the substance. So why would we seek a sign when we've got the substance? Peter calls this a more sure word of prophecy. So tongues, then he says are assigned to unbelieving Jews attached irretrievably to a point of redemptive history. They served well to show that Christianity was not to be distinctly Jewish, but worldwide. They served to confirm and authenticate the speakers and messages who brought that message. And they served to show Israel that they had again rejected God in unbelief and apostasy. And beloved, people say, well, don't you think today that, that tongues could have a purpose in the church? Well, if tongues were around, they're going to have to have the same purpose for which they had then. And that point would, what, what point then would there be today to signify that God is going to judge Israel when he already has? So we don't need them. Now, having stated that purpose, watch how Paul relates it to the assembling together of the believers in verse 23. Now, the therefore... <laughs> Now you understand why I've done what I've done. I've helped you understand, therefore, why Paul says, therefore. Therefore, based on all that understanding that, that Paul knew that they had to have known because they were Jews, he knew. Listen, this is stuff that you can go back and see and read, and this is what I'm telling you. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, what does he say? If the whole church assembles together. Well, that's interesting, Paul. Because wherever a local congregation of believers, wherever it is gathered, wherever it is assembled, there is the body of Christ in its fullness. It does not exist in Rome or any other place like that. It exists when the church gathers together. Amen? Second, it is normal for the whole church to gather together or to assemble together. That's incredibly important for the church as whole and for individual believers. Because you know Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 said this. Let us hold fast, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, 
And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. Boy, couldn't this next phrase be said today in our culture as the habit of some. Thanks, COVID. But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. I'll leave that alone and let everybody online and everywhere else let the Holy Spirit speak to you whether you're in the regular habit of assembling or you're not. If the whole church assembles together, Paul says, and all speak in tongues. Now again, you remember last week we talked about when he uses the plural of tongues, he's meaning the true gift of tongues. When he uses the singular, he means the false gift. He says, if everyone used the true gift of tongues, he says, if everyone did that, do you know what would happen? Ungifted men or even unbelievers, won't they say you're mad? So when an unbelieving Gentile came into the Corinthian assembly, he said this, that's a bunch of gibberish. These people are mad. That word is manomai in the Greek. It means frenzied. Plato said it was the word to describe the ecstasies of the pagans when they got in their ecstatic utterances with their deities. In other words, an unbelieving Gentile would go in and say, you know what? I've seen this stuff happen over in Temple of Diana. I don't need any more of that. The word mad, manami, is the word we get our word mania from. It refers to a state of unreality or even hallucination. So the unbelievers, watch this, whom the sign was really for, <laughs> the unbelievers would think you guys are detached from reality and y'all are smoking something. It would appear ludicrous to the very people who would have, should have been convinced by the sign. Even in using them the way they were, the sign wasn't working because the sign was unintelligible. You say, but it's supposed to be a sign to them, yes? But if it was done in a chaotic fashion where everybody was doing it and nobody was explaining what it meant, then how were they supposed to know that the judgment of God was coming? It is a special gift. It means it's a specific time in a specific way with a specific person in mind with a specific intent. But on the other hand, Paul says, instead of doing that in your assembly, verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever, an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed, so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. That is amazing to me. Tongues are useless to edify. Useless to edify the church or an individual, and they're simply useless to evangelize, is what he's saying. They were simply pre-evangelism to, a, to, to give a, a nation a sign that they had been cursed. So he says, what you should do is make sure that instead of doing that stuff, you're proclaiming God's word for edification, exhortation, and consolation, which he's mentioned up earlier. So watch what happens when we prophesy. Watch what happens when we proclaim the word of God. Watch what happens in your text. He says, when an unbeliever comes in, first he will be convicted of all. That means he will be convicted of all his sin. Convicted of all his sin and his need for Jesus. That's what will happen when you hear the proclamation of the word of God. And then he says that you will be, you'll be judged by all. Well, that's interesting. The text here says called to account by all, which is a better way of saying this. The word literally means, literally, it means to cross-examine. 
So the hearer is not only convicted of his sin and need for Jesus, but then he or she finds themselves overwhelmingly cross-examined by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit convicting them and pressing in on their, their, their need of a Savior. And the verdict will be rendered that, that you are guilty. And then all of a sudden, the secrets of your heart are made manifest to you. His sin will become apparent to him in ways he never imagined or thought. And that never happens apart from the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. He begins to see the unimaginable corruption of his own heart and light of the holiness and mercy of God, and it will become unmasked. And then in deep humiliation and in a sense of deep self-condemnation and unworthiness, he will bow on his face and worship God and say, truly, the true God is in your midst. Please notice the unbelievable contrast that Paul is trying to teach us. The anticipated results of tongues is the conclusion on the part of unbelievers that you guys are mad. Yet when there is prophecy, the proclamation of the word of God, unbelievers are deeply convicted and moved to fall on their faces in the worship of the true God. And the report goes out, not that people are mad, but that God is truly in this place. True conviction, authentic conversion, and genuine evangelism comes when the church proclaims the word, just continues to preach and teach the word. So when we are gathered together, we shouldn't look for all these spiritual signs of just being, oh, in the spirit. We should look for scriptural substance because that's what brings about the power of God. Beloved, don't you want that to be the case here? Don't we want people to, to come to be in our fellowship, to fall on their faces and say, God is amongst us? We don't want there to be confusion. I mean, what a thrilling promise to a church that, that exalts the proclamation of the word of God. The impact would be tremendous, but a service of tongues would produce nothing but madness. So you see, this gift was very limited. It was regulated for a day and time that's long past. And what we're seeing today, I'm afraid, and I say this with love, but I'm afraid today in our churches, we're seeing the Corinthian perversion all over again with the modern charismatic movement. And I'm not questioning their motive. I'm just saying that they had the same approach to individual private prayer languages and being slain in the spirit and the second blessing that no scriptural text has ever, ever known. So, beloved, we want to exalt the word of God and lift it up where we can find the answers to everything. And in this case, a sure, more certain word of prophecy. So I'm hoping that, that you will one day get to the point where you could say and that I could say, Pastor, I want you to know that if somebody told me I would have to choose between my Bible and food and water, I would say, take the food and the water away and give me my Bible because that's all I need to live on. God has helped us to be people of this book. Not seeking the experiences, but seeking truth. Fruitful in our understanding, ministering to each other in ways that edify and build up. So then what does that mean practically for your life? So Jeremy, if you guys would come, let me just help you understand how to do what I've just said. 
And I say this to you in love. Please, please know I'm not trying to chastise you. I'm just trying to help you. Brothers and sisters, if this is what God says it is, then can I ask you this question? Why are you not reading it on a daily basis? Why are we not consumed with this book? Why is it that some of us, listen, mm, boy, this, I'm just going to say, why can't we even bring our Bibles to church for God's sake? Why do we stay up late on Sunday nights and come in here so tired we can't pay attention? How many of you were up early this morning on your face saying, God, you're going to speak to me today and I want to be ready to hear what you have to say? How many of you came into this room to say, God, I know you're going to speak. Please speak to me. And the answer is yes before you speak because I know your word is true. I'm telling you, man, God wants to speak a word to our hearts, doesn't he? And he wants to encourage you. If you're going through whatever, God wants to speak a word to encourage you. If you're struggling with something painful, God's word will bring comfort to you. If you don't know what to do, God's word brings counsel to you. And if that is true, then listen to me, church should not be an option. Right? For others, you may not know the Lord, and so let me speak to you just for a moment. Can I, can I just... And if you're a praying person, would you begin to pray right now, just in your heart? For those who may not know the Lord that are in a room with us today, or maybe listening by way of radio, or even online with us, would you just listen to me just for a moment? See, back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created us, we find out, to walk and talk with Him, to be in relationship with Him. It's always been His desire. He, he wants relationship with us. He wants to love us and, and just enjoy being with us. But you know this, that sin entered into the world. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And with that, God made a promise to Eve that there would be one who would come that Satan would, would crush his heel, but, but this one would crush Satan's head. And, and God said, but Eve and Adam, because you've disobeyed me, even though this one's coming, I have to cast you away from my presence because sin can't be in the presence of God. And so they died spiritually. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. It means to be permanently separated from God. And because of that, they couldn't get back into the garden to eat of the tree of life, so they began to die physically. That's why you and I die physically. That wasn't what God wanted. That wasn't what God intended. But God had made a promise that one was going to come, that he was going to, Satan was going to crush his heel, but this one was going to crush the head of Satan, and he was going to bring people back into the presence of God and give them life. And so all through the ages, all through the ages, they continue to look and look for that one that was coming. 
And then around this time of year, someone said, in the city of David is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This one had come. A Savior who would bring us back into the presence of God and take us from death and, and bring us life. And Jesus, God in the flesh, because only God can fix our problem. Only one is sinless. Only one can pay for the sins of the world. It had to be a perfect, sinless sacrifice. And Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. And then he died on a cross. He died physically. But he also died in the spiritual sense because he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus took our punishment, physical death and spiritual death. He did it all. He paid for it. And he was buried. And then he was raised from life, from death to give us life. He conquered death. And then, and then he went to the Father to show us that not only can he fix our death problem, he can fix our spiritual death problem. And he went to the presence of God. So then Jesus says in John 14, 6, he says, I am the only way. I am the only truth. I am the only life. And no one can get to the Father but through me. Then he said in John 3, 16, for my Father. Remember, my father created everyone to be in relationship with him. My father still loves people. And my father so loved the world that he gave me his only begotten son that whoever would believe in me wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. So Jesus also meant this, that in John 3, 17, he says, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Because it's condemned already. I came in the world to save it. Wow. Jesus came to bring you from death to life. From darkness to light. From being an enemy of God to being a child of God and a friend of God. So if you're here this morning, I want you to know that Romans 3.23 says this. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It wasn't just Adam and Eve. All of us. And the Bible says in Romans 6, 23, that what we get because of that, the Bible says the wages of sin, what we get because we're sinners is death. Well, that's true. You know that to be true. We all die physically. You get that. But you may not know that you're already spiritually dead. You have no relationship with God. But he goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates, he put on display his love for us in this, that while you and I were still sinning, Christ died for us. She's saying, then, well, how do I make that, Steve? How do I become now a believer? How, how is this, how's this going to work? What is it that I need to do? Well, this more certain word of prophecy tells you even that because it says this. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? 
saved from spiritual death and saved from physical death. Because one day, when you die physically, you'll be to go with God forever and ever and ever. And then Jesus is going to come back and give us all new bodies. But we'll never die again. The answer is always Jesus. That's what Christmas is all about. So how about that for a Christmas message? I wonder if you'd stand to your feet. Listen, if you don't know the Lord Jesus in this room this morning, I just simply want to ask you, maybe in your own way, you would go before the Lord while we're singing and just say to him that you're a sinner and that you realize that today, that your sin has been made known to you, that you want to give your life to him and ask him to forgive you, to come into your life and make you new you're willing to turn from your sin, that you're willing to trust Jesus. If you pray a prayer like that, I'm telling you the Lord Jesus will do work in your heart. Maybe you need to come up here and talk to one of us. We'll be down here. We would never embarrass you. Maybe it is this morning, man. Maybe you've been convicted by something the Lord has said. You want to deal with the Lord. This ought to be open for you. Maybe you've got something you just to pray about in any shape, form, or fashion. I don't know what it may be. Privately or Maybe with one of us, this altar will be open. Let me pray for you. Holy Spirit, in these moments, we open our hearts to respond and to say yes to whatever it is that you have for us. We pray it in Jesus' name.